I'm Valerie Earnshaw. I'm Carly Hill. And this is Sex, Drugs, and Science. Today's conversation is with Dr. Sam Friedman. Sam is a research professor and a faculty member at the Center for Opioid Epidemiology and Policy in the Department of Population Health at New York University's Grossman School of Medicine. He is also the Associate Director of the Infectious Disease Epidemiology and Theory Corps at the Center for Drug Use and HIV Research. Today's bonus episode is a brief one. Unfortunately, we had some technical difficulties during our recording, but our fantastic editor, Christina Holstaffel, was able to piece together a few bits of the conversation, so we hope you enjoy it. All right, so in this first segment that we were able, that Christina was able to salvage for us, we asked Sam about his thoughts on being a scientist and an activist. So essentially, you know, whether there is a contradiction there. So first off, I should say that Sam just doesn't identify as a scientist. (laughs) So that was good to know. Um, He identifies as a scholar, so maybe I'll need to sort of dig into some of these identity issues in season two. I think so. Double check that the people we're interviewing identify as scientists or (laughs) figure out who who they are a little bit more deeply. Um, But more generally, I mean, this, this conversation around science and activism is one that I'm really interested in. I'm really curious as to whether scientists, especially in our field, um, identify as activists. So I think that um, there, some people perceive that there's a risk that identifying as an activist means that your objectivity is sort of clouded. And I had never really thought about this until I was at Harvard Med School. So I was a faculty member there and we were hosting a symposium. It was on LGBT bullying. And it was like so interesting. So there was a panel discussion, which means that there were a group of people sitting on the stage and they were talking to each other about different issues related to bullying. And it was, it was a great panel. There were, you know, about, I think it was like just about half of the folks on the panel were researchers and the others half were uh, community members, including some uh, youth from the LGBT community in Boston. And somebody raised their hand and they asked the panel if they were activists and like who identified as an activist. And I'll never forget it. Like all of the youth raised their hand. One of the you know, one of the PhDs on the panel uh, raised a hand, and then two of them didn't. And I was just, I was really surprised because these two scientists in particular are people who do uh, a lot of research on structural stigma and who who have done amazing work on stigma. A lot of it, which I think is like calling for social change, and so I was. Just yeah. really interested that they did not identify as activists. And then they took a poll of the of the room, like of the audience, and it was still like it was about like 50-50. Which is that like it doesn't line up, you know, unless it's one of those things where like you get so deep into the research that it's just like a part of your everyday life and it doesn't seem I feel like the term activism comes with some sort of like charge about it, you know, like there's like a hard definition of that that seems sort of radical, I think, in a lot of contexts. And like, you know, so maybe once you're you're doing all that stigma research that like you said is so, you know, calls for activism, you know, most of the time that you just 
not that you're numb to it, but it, it doesn't feel so radical when that's the the work that you're doing every day. But yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And so that's why I kind of circle back. I'm like, maybe, maybe the idea is that if they identify as an activist, activist, then they they worry that their um, objectivity is clouded, that they like, you know, can't be as trusted with the data right. or something. But I mean, I've always <laughs> shown up to protest. I mean, on our Instagram account, we have some photos from Stephanie Shador, who was on the podcast, out protesting. I went with her to the Women's March. And um, I went most recently to a very super socially distanced uh, protest at our Acme. I don't know if I told you about that, which is our local grocery store yes. <laughs> for Black Lives Matter movement. Um and so I just, I really don't see that as, um, as conflicting, especially because we have theory and we have research, I think, showing that like social change helps to stop stigma. So if I'm helping to stop stigma through my intervention work, through like my other projects, like why not help to stop stigma by like going to protests or engaging right. in activism? Like, you know, so anyway, I just, I... I did raise my hand. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So anyway, so we asked him this question and, and now you'll hear him uh, think through and talk through what his thoughts on this are. So coming off of, you know, thoughts of the revolution, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, especially since you were out protesting this week was your thoughts on sort of the intersection between being a scientist and being an activist and how you see those those two roles are they complementary are they contradictory and as i previewed maybe i've already answered this since you were out protesting this week <laughs> but i'd love to hear your thoughts on that um i i mean i mean I see no contradiction. I'm not sure I'm a scientist. Uh, I, I tend to think of myself as a scholar. Uh, but um, when I wrote my first book, which was called Teamster Rank and File, and was a qualitative study of an activist and militant local union in Los Angeles of truck drivers. Um, I made the point that there was a lot of stuff I couldn't have understood or learned if I were not part of a movement that had worked with those truck drivers when they were on wildcat strike. Mm -hmm. And that, furthermore, as I think everyone understands, the concept of scientific objectivity is bullshit. <laughs> um, what you can have is scientific integrity and okay. honesty. And attempt to understand your biases, but that doesn't mean get rid of them necessarily. You know, it means understand... what you are doing and that sometimes it's committed to things. One of the things I found when I first came to AIDS work 
was that all this stuff about objectivity and this, that, and the other on a certain level was utter nonsense hmm. because all these researchers are ganging up on some poor virus. Oh, huh, okay. So, and you know, all of medicine is committed to killing germs. Mm -hmm. That's not objective. That's taking sides. I've never thought of it that way. <laughs> no, me neither. That just, that was like one of those like mind blowing yep. <laughs> moments for me where I was like, huh, well, well, damn. <laughs> well, I, I do feel like Sam is the one to question everything. So. <laughs> All right. So then Sam shared with us his involvement in drug user activism in the 1990s and the early 2000s, including a demonstration at the Department of Health and Human Services. Could you tell us a little bit more maybe about what, ac what activism or I know you've written about um, like social organizations or group organizations for drug users, sort of like sort of what those organizations and movements look like? It's hard to generalize, um, and there's been some historical change. To begin with, almost all of them were student councils for drug treatment programs. Oh, so affiliated with universities? No, aff oh. affiliated with drug treatment programs. Oh, okay. But you know, like a high school student council, which is a creature of the administration usually. Oh, okay. Interesting. Um, however, there were a few real exceptions. And I've written extensively about the Junkiebunden in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. And they were a clear exception, although not all of them. Some of them were at least halfway in between. Let's put it that way. They were creatures of the drug treatment program but that's at least in part because the people in the drug treatment program were halfway to being part of the junkie movement. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's, um, but for example, the, and then there were groups like the Amsterdam group, which I forget what it name was, Mm -hmm. which was actually in many ways an organization of the drug reform movement rather than of the drug user activist movement, but cooperative. So that it was kind of another in-between thing. Um, now, over time, huge varieties of different things. For example, in Australia, Basically, they funded drug user activism from the state governments. Oh, really? They wanted to have a voice on AIDS coming from drug users because it seemed to be working for gays. Interesting. Okay. Now, that is an interesting form of organization. Uh, it's quite effective in many ways. It's certainly effective yelling at government officials at various times. And it did a lot of good outreach and similar work and some organizing. Um, 
Now we have international bodies that have been lasting in reasonable shape since about 2008. Hmm. I mean, we'd had predecessor international bodies. Um, and there's some continuity of them all the way into the early 90s. Um, but you know, none of them almost have ever become mass activist. Mm, okay. Partly because there aren't that many drug users. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, we've got all of this um, attention on the opioid epidemic in the U.S. At least, you know, pre-COVID, that was um, a big part of the discussion. And it's interesting because I have colleagues who, you know, will look at their data and they'll be like, I don't know what's wrong with the data that I collected. There's not a lot of drug users in here but there's all this noise about the opioid epidemic. So where are all the people using opioids in my data set? <laughs> so, well, that's yeah. obvious. You're not telling them. That is, yep, that is true. Um, it's very hard in a general population survey to get people to admit drug use. Sure. Um, you know, we've made estimates. Other people have made estimates. You know, depending how you define it, there's something like two or three million drug users, opioid users in the U.S. probably. Okay. That's less than 1%. Right. Uh, and they're spread all over. Mm -hmm. There have been demonstrations with hundreds of people, but, you know, at least officially they're harm reduction demonstrations. It's safer that way. And often it is harm reductionists, many of whom are always ex-drug users, some of whom may not be so ex. Okay. But, you know, I remember a demonstration in the mid-90s, I think it was, at HHS in Washington. Several hundred people screaming about needle exchange. Um, of the people who actually had R01s at the time. So the big research grants that we get from the National Institutes of Health. Yeah, that is the people who might be identifiable to people walking by. Okay. I mean, there were, there were a few others who might be identifiable as project directors or things like that, or even postdocs. There were only two of us. And I've always um, been very, very impressed by David Metzger that he came. Okay. He also has roots in the drug treatment world after all. Okay. But, you know, the, the two of us did it and there was no retribution that I know of. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, uh, given your career trajectory and your avant-garde award and everything, I, I would say that you did pretty well despite, pro, you know, despite protest. <laughs> Thank you.
All right, so we did some research into this protest at the Department of Health and Human Services, or HHS. So we think that it was in 1997, um, and we found out basically that there were about 500 to 1,000 people by newspaper reports gathered to protest um, HHS at Secretary Donna Shalala and President Clinton's inaction on lifting the ban on federal funding of needle exchange programs. So, you know, by 1997, there's good scientific evidence that these needle exchange programs can um, effectively like reduce the spread of HIV and is a really good HIV prevention strategy for people who inject drugs. So we have the data and then the problem is that there's no federal funding for this thing that is super, super uh, effective. So it looks like the protest was organized by the National Coalition to Save Lives Now. And my favorite part about this protest <laughs> was that there were 12 protesters who were arrested for attempting to bring a 12-foot-tall replica of a human backbone into the HHS building. And they had signs that said, moral backbone for Clinton and moral backbone for Shalala. So this is just my favorite <laughs> thing to That visualize. is such a boss move, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So it really made me feel like, you know, for the next protest that I go out to, I need to like step up my game. Yeah, you got to get like better, more powerful props, you know? I know. Yeah, the last one I had, you know, like my sign and then I wore my Ruth Bader Ginsburg mask, which I felt like was pretty pretty good those, yeah those are that's pretty bold too i mean it's no backbone but it's no that's backbone. A that's bold, something, yep. like i need to go more vertical <laughs> i need to like break out some paper mache <laughs> yes exactly okay well so we we definitely appreciate some um inspiring stories to keep us going in our own activism uh, absolutely this and, and moving forward Thank you to the Stigma and Health Inequities Lab at the University of Delaware, including Mackenzie Sarnak, Sarah Lopez, and Alyssa Leung. This episode was edited by Christina Holzapple. Thanks always to City Girl for letting us use the music. And you guys can follow us on Instagram at sex, drugs, science, no and, for updates. Or you guys can email us any comments, questions, concerns, etc. at sex, drugs, and science at gmail.com. So that's sex, drugs, the letter N science at gmail.com apparently sex drugs and science was already taken <laughs> yeah we'll have to send them an email to figure out who they are and why <laughs> we can buy the rights yeah all right well thank you all for listening